Hi, everybody. My name is Barbara. I'm very grateful, Alan. Hi, Barbara. And uh, it's great to be here with you. Um, you know, there's, there's, this is a very special roundup. There's, we felt very loved and cared for. And uh, I know that Juanita and Bob and Marlene and Dick have a lot to do with us being here. It was a real treat to find out that Marietta was chairing this meeting because um, there's a special bond when you've been delegate. And um, I, uh, I was great. It was great to see her. Um, also, you have a couple potential new great committee members, and Norman and Marcia, they would not take no for an answer. They helped us get into our room yesterday, carrying all our bags down, and um, uh, even Phil made sure we had, uh, I had people to eat with last night, uh, and everybody's been wonderful. I also told Dick when we got to the room, and I looked at the ba uh, basket, I said, this has been made by an Al-Anon, and uh, it's, uh, there's an extra special love in a basket made by an Al-Anon. <laughs> Anyway, I'm so glad to be here with you. I, uh, Dick and I both um, saw that um, your theme has to do with miracles, and miracles have been so much a part of our life. Um, and I don't know that I always realized that before I came to the program. I was always one of those glass half-empty people. Uh, I always looked at what I didn't have and what I had to feel sorry about and who I had to resent from yesterday and what I was missing out on and uh, what I had to regret. And, or I was worried about tomorrow. Uh, what was going to happen? How was I going to make it through it? What did I have to fear? And I never, I never really saw today. Um, one day at a time helps us learn how to uh, truly begin to experience the everyday miracles, the everyday little things that happen, those events that are beyond human understanding. And uh, particularly over the last two years, uh, Dick and I have uh, drawn a lot of strength from that. Uh, in the middle of a lot of challenges, there have been gifts every day. And so one of the, uh, one of the special uh, challenges, but, but special gifts I found, is looking for that gift that God has for me in each. And so many of you were that gift yesterday. And I, um, I would like to share with you, before I start, uh, or start telling you my actual story, uh, my 12 steps before Al-Anon, because they're very significant in uh, how I lived my life before I came here. Number one, I discovered that I was powerful over others and that your lives were certainly unmanageable. Number two, I came to believe that I was the power that could restore you to sanity. Number three, I made a decision that I was the power you could turn your will and life over to. Number four, I made a searching and fear-filled inventory of everyone that I knew and found them lacking. Number five, admitted to God, myself, and anyone that would listen the exact nature of your wrongs. Number six, became entirely ready to assist you in removing all your defects of character. Number seven, humbly, huh, assisted you in removing your defects of character, except when to do so would cause me harm. Eight, made a list of all persons that had harmed me and vowed to get even with them all. Nine. Waited and waited and waited and waited for everyone to make direct amends to me. Ten, continue to take your inventory, and when you were wrong, promptly pointed it out. Eleven, sought through martyrdom, mothering, managing, and manipulating to improve your conscious contact with me, asking only that you read my mind and carry out my wishes. Twelve, having had a complete physical, emotional, and spiritual breakdown as a result of this type of living, I tried to drag all those down that I loved with me and get sympathy and pity from all who would listen.
But actually, what's sad is that was true. That was kind of my life. Um, alcoholism may have affected me differently than it affected the alcoholic, but it affected me every bit as severely. Um, I didn't recognize it. Uh, by the time I walked in the doors of Al-Anon, um, I had uh, uh, severe intestinal problems. I had a bleeding ulcer. I had uh, severe asthma. I had an active eating disorder. I was uh, spiritually bankrupt. I was severely depressed. I was suicidal half the time. But I had a smile on my face all the time, and I was everybody's best friend, and nobody had a clue. Nobody had a clue how sick I was. Uh, alcoholism to the family members is often like a poison eating us uh, alive from the inside out. And I was uh, kind of like an empty shell by the time I walked into these doors. Um, I came to Al-Anon because I was dating uh, a man from Kentucky. And uh, he told me he would uh, never uh, marry anybody unless they were in Al-Anon. So I went to Al-Anon uh, to manipulate him into marrying me. So I uh, didn't really come to Al-Anon with all, you know, wise and wonderful thoughts. So however you got to the program doesn't really matter. It can help us regardless. Um, my story came to me in bits and pieces um, because uh, I didn't really realize how much alcoholism had affected my life. I, my four grandparents, three of them were alcoholic. My father was the baby of 14 kids, and uh, my, uh, when my, his dad was seven years old, uh, his dad tried to commit suicide, and he was put in the North Carolina State Mental Institution. And uh, his father died there five years later. And my father, then 12 years old, could barely remember what his dad uh, looked like. And he snuck into the funeral home to see his dad one last time. And what he saw was a body with both arms and both legs broken. And the body was black and blue. And my dad never told anybody. He just stored it away. He told me after I'd been in Allen a year or so. And I did some research and found that uh, that used to be the treatment for alcoholism. They would try to shock it out of somebody by breaking a limb. Um, now, we've come a long way since then, this is, but this is just two generations ago. We may want to break limbs here before we come to Al-Anon, but, um, but uh, that, that is what happened to my grandfather. Uh, my dad's brothers and sisters, over half of them were alcoholic. I also found out recently uh, when uh, Dick was discovering uh, on a recent trip, we went to Gettysburg, and he was uh, discovering the legacy of his um, uh, General Dick Anderson uh, and his a part of Gettysburg. Uh, we also stopped by Mount Airy, North Carolina, and found the exhibit of the Allen murders. Uh, Allen is my maiden name, and uh, the most notorious courthouse killing ever was uh, done by uh, a bunch of my father's relatives. Uh, they were all uh, moonshiners, and uh, they killed uh, seven people in a courthouse. So no wonder my dad never talked about his father's family. Uh, <laughs> But, um, you know, alcoholism was certainly all over the place. Um, my mother's mother and father were alcoholic. Um, my mother's father uh, came from a family of great wealth. Now, I didn't know this growing up. I'm probably glad I didn't. My uncle, who's now about 16 years sober, told me this. And um, my great-grandfather gave all the kids some money, said, make something of it, you get some more. Uh, make nothing of it, you get nothing. And, of course, my grandfather was alcoholic and squandered it all. And... Uh, uh, was uh, died and was actually buried in a pauper's grave. Um, my grandmother, my mother's mother, was the alcoholic that I grew up knowing the most. I had these two adult children of alcoholics trying to raise me that didn't know anything about being parents. Uh, they didn't have the role models. Uh, they, all they knew was uh, they liked to hang out with each other. And 
Uh, they weren't bad parents, but most of the time on the weekend that they weren't working, I was with my grandmother and they were together. So I spent most of the weekends with my grandmother, and um, I have fun, fond memories. Uh, the first thing we did every Saturday morning, my grandmother and I woke up and we went to the liquor store. And um, we didn't go to just one, we went to three. And uh, uh, she used to tell, tell me she was bargain shopping, but I don't think she wanted any of them to know exactly how much she was really buying. So we would make the rounds, and it was probably illegal back then too, but they would take me into the liquor store and behind the counter and had have some toys or some candy, and I'd talk to the owner or the cash register person while my grandmother would do her shopping for the week. Um, and we'd pile all the liquor in the car uh, as we went, made the rounds, and somewhere along the line uh, we would get a piece of cheese and some bread. The only thing I ever remember eating at my grandmother's was cheese toast. And uh, then we would uh, jump in the car to go off on some kind of errand. Now, we usually had lunch at some fine lady's place in Atlanta, um, and uh, it had to be a place that served martinis, and my grandmother would have her martinis, and I would have my Shirley Temple, and uh, it was quite a, a, a to-do. And then we would be off on some kind of errand. Now, I, in later years, I discovered just how creative my grandmother was. We'd go to an art opening and where they would have a glass of wine or two for her, or we'd go somewhere where she could get her hair fixed, uh, but I always remember having a glass of something to drink there. Uh, we would go to um, look for ball gowns. Now, these balls never really existed in Seth and her imagination, but we would go look for dresses at very fine ladies' places, and they would give her something to drink. I actually found that out from um, some uh, ladies in AA in Atlanta, uh, because they had done that too. And, uh, uh, and, then, one, and then she was also creative. One week I showed up, and she had decided she wanted me to play the accordion. And... Uh, uh, we went around looking for accordions, and uh, the next week I'd show up, and she changed her mind. She wanted me to play the harp, and uh, so we go look for those. Um, and uh, I never got any of these things. I was confused by it, but we would have some kind of adventure, and then we'd go back to her house, and we'd unpack the trunk of liquor, and I'd fix my cheese toast, or she would, and we would settle down to watch Lawrence Welk, which was her favorite show. And somewhere in the middle of Lawrence Welk, Grandmother would fall asleep. Now, today I know that she passed out, but um, I didn't really understand it then. And so many a Saturday night, I was hurt or hungry or sick or tired or scared, and um, I had to fend for myself. So I learned early on that I was really the only one that was responsible enough to take care of myself. Um, one particular Saturday night, I remember going out on the back stoop and uh, uh, cutting my feet on some broken glass, which were probably from her liquor bottles. And I didn't know what to do. I, got in the, I ran the water and got in the tub. I remember seeing this red rushing out in the water. And um, uh, somehow or other, out of her drunken stupor, she came, had me stand on two towels and went back to bed. Um, and I didn't know my life had been affected by alcoholism. Um, often on Saturday night, Grandmother would wake me back up, and we would go out to honky-tonks. Now, these were not the fine ladies' places. These were the dirt and uh, concrete, beer-soaked, sawdust, you know, soaked... Uh, establishments, and uh, I would be trying to sleep on the floor while grandmother was partying above me, yet I had no idea that had anything to do with alcoholism. So when Dick asked me if I had any alcoholism in my family, I told him no. I didn't know with it. Um, as soon as I um, could, uh, as soon as I found friends or things to do on the weekends uh, where I didn't have to go to grandmother's, um, I managed not to. And um, I didn't spend much time with her. I grew up terrified of alcohol. I would have told you back then that it was a religious judgment. I was Southern Baptist, but um, it was really more about the terror of what I had seen. Um, I um, had two dates in all of high school. 
Um, I called myself a, a, a wallflower, uh, but um, I, uh, those were two events. I had to go and take somebody with me. Uh, and then I went off to uh, college. I went to a small uh, church college. And uh, I met a young man there. I was uh, walking around campus one night, and a young man came and asked me if I wanted to go to church with him. It was probably the perfect thing for somebody to ask me. And so we went off to church, and uh, on the way back, he, uh, he wanted to talk a little bit. We pulled over on the side of the road, and he started telling me his story. His father was alcoholic, and he had caught his father in the act of adultery with another woman. And um, his father had hung, uh, was hiding him out at this church school. And he was going to have to go back and testify against his father in the divorce case. And he started sobbing. And I was automatically in love. It was uh, just about that quick. You know, here was a man who needed me. And he had this pitiful story. And, of course, I could help him. Uh, now, he was alcoholic himself. But it took me a little while to figure that out. Um, he was also, uh, I discovered, um, it took me a while. I had some friends giving me hints. But he was also gay. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, when you are a little, you know, sun meme or whatever I was, um, being a good girl, you don't always find these things out right away. So um, anyway, uh, I, that should have been the end of the story, but I wasn't. I thought all he needed was the love of a good woman, me, and that I could fix that too. So uh, uh, it didn't work, but I tried. Um, I had a number of other relationships. Um, I had, uh, I, after I finished uh, college, I went on to seminary. And uh, I met a young man there, and uh, we were out on a dance floor at a disco one night, which is probably where you're supposed to go when you're in seminary. And uh, uh, he announced to me that he was gay. And uh, I, uh, you know, if you now I was a musician, so I was in the um, music school. So um, and there were. Um, a lot of young men trying to decide what their sexuality was that were in the music school at the time. Um, I um, also uh, went out with a, a young man who was, uh, had told me that he needed to break up with me because he thought I would be a better minister than him, and he didn't think he could handle that. So, you know, he was the guy with low self-esteem. And then there was the one that my parents hated. He was loud and obnoxious, and he was from the Bronx, and the church had saved him um, from his alcoholism and, uh, you know, to uh, this wonderful hunk of love. I eventually gave my uh, virginity. But, um, you know, I just over and over again, disastrous relationships. Well, my first semester in um, seminary was also significant. And then I was playing the piano, and I was working um, with a youth choir at a church out in... Uh, uh, Linden, and I went to Linden Baptist Church. And one particular Saturday night, a young man came in, uh, Sunday night, uh, came in and asked if he could speak. And he gave his AA story, and he said he needed to make amends to the church. And he got up on a Sunday night and made amends to the church, and, um, and that man was my husband, who y'all heard last night. Now, Dick didn't tell you that, you know, he asked me out back then. Uh, as he said last night, uh, his sponsor told him if he could find anybody to go out with him that um, he could date. And he asked me out. Now, I still don't remember it. Um, and we've been married 23 years, so I don't remember it. Um, he said he saw me up in the choir one Sunday and prayed a very eloquent prayer. God, she do. And uh, <laughs> uh, asked me out. And uh, I, uh, I told him uh, I was dating somebody else. Now, it ended up to be some guy in the church who ended up to be gay. And uh, <laughs> But um, nonetheless, I turned him down. 
So um, Dick and I ran back into each, uh, to each other about four years later in Atlanta. And I had graduated from the seminary by then. And uh, I was walking around a mall, and he came up to me and said, I know I know you from somewhere. And I said, I didn't think anybody ever actually used that line. And uh, he uh, eventually realized we'd, mar- we'd met at this church in Louisville. And um, I eventually gave him my phone number, more to get rid of him than anything else. And uh, uh, Dick asked me out a couple times. I finally agreed to go out with him. The first uh, time we went out, we went to this beautiful four-star restaurant, and we went out to uh, see a, um, a musical, uh, musical theater play. And, uh, and it was a, a fabulous date, particularly since the guys I was going out with, Sizzler and a Dollar Movie, was a big date. And uh, the next time, we went out to another equally wonderful res- restaurant and a movie. And the third date, we went to Chastain Park in Atlanta, which is an outdoor amphitheater. And we had, uh, saw Johnny Mathis under the stars. And Dick had a catered dinner brought in. Well, I was a little suspicious, and uh, it was our third date, and Dick told me about this prayer that had been hanging out there, the God-she-do prayer, and uh, thought that God had brought us together and we were destined to be together. Now, this was our third date, and I told him I wasn't really sure I was even attracted to him, and uh, (laughs) unfortunately, I told him a little bit about my history by then, too, and he told me he didn't think I knew what to do with a heterosexual. (laughs) Which was true. <laughs> so um, anyway, we didn't date for a little while. And uh, I called him to help me on my, with my resume. You know, I just kind of wanted to keep the door open in case, in case I changed my mind. And I kind of did an inventory. I went through all the relationships, called all the guys up. You know, I, the gay ones were still gay. <laughs> the obnoxious ones were still obnoxious. And um, so on uh, Valentine's Day of 1984, I called Dick. Uh, now, on, if you're alone on Valentine's Day, you never know what looks good. But anyway, so I called Dick, and I asked, told him I thought I made a mistake, and I wanted to go out with him again. So we started dating again in February, and it didn't take a long time. We got married in October. Now, um, in the middle of that time, you know, um, I went to my first Al-Anon meet. You know, Dick had told me that uh, he wouldn't marry anybody unless they were in Al-Anon. I started going to Al-Anon for all the wrong reasons. Um, I call it my Cliff Notes version of the program, period. And so I went and I tried to learn all the buzzwords uh, to do the program as quick as I could to convince him I was doing it, whether I really was or not. Um, I remember going to my first meeting, and, you know, some people talk about going to Al-Anon and having this feeling of this is just for me, and it really, I didn't have that experience. I walked in and, you know, I wasn't living in active alcoholism, and it took me a little while to realize just how much ism was still in Dick. Uh, so it, um, it, it, it didn't seem to all make sense to me. And everybody was married to somebody that they'd seen drinking, and I did, hadn't discovered everything about my family yet. So uh, I went, and I learned all the words, and I kind of did my independent study of the steps. And uh, <clears throat> Dick suggested I needed a sponsor. He suggested a particular person, and there was no way I was gonna pick, he was going to pick my sponsor. So I went to the next meeting, and I uh, picked the woman who sounded like she made some sense. She was leading the discussion that night. And um, I said, in fact, I've already gotten through the fourth step. I've already written it. Um, And uh, uh, she said, well, why don't you give it to me? I'll read it overnight, and I'll call you and tell you what I think. Um, Now, if you haven't done a fourth and fifth step, this is not the way to do it. So uh, she called me later, and she said, all she said was, Run. And I said, excuse me? She said, run. Don't marry this guy. You don't have to put yourself in this situation. Don't marry him. Just get out. You don't even need to be an ally on run. 
And I had, um, thought, and then she went on to say that her husband was currently in the other room having sex with another woman. I said, I don't think I picked the right spot. So um, anyway, I went back to that meeting one more time to get my four-step back from her. Um, and, uh, and she entered the brownout period, stage of my life. You know, I have a lot of brownouts. I don't, never had blackouts, but brownouts for me were people ceased to exist. You know, if I really resented somebody, I didn't just get mad at them. They just got wiped out of the memory bank. You know, I don't remember what she looks like. I don't remember her name. There's, she's gone. You could be in here. You know, you don't have to tell me if you are. But <laughs> I always fantasize that one day she's going to come up and say, hey, it was me. Um, but um, anyway, I don't remember. Um, so uh, I eventually did get a sponsor. Uh, Dick and I got married. Uh, when we got married, we had, we had Baptist active alcoholics, which were mostly my family, and people in AA. It was a very mi- interesting mix. And uh, uh, we got married and uh, settled into our house. Now, I kept a backpack the first two years we were married. Um, you know, I, uh, Dick and I, um, you know, his family recreationally argue about anything. You know, they'll, it'll start over white or wheat bread, you know, and they'll still be arguing two, two hours later. My family didn't argue about anything. You know, our family motto was, I don't care, whatever you want to do. And so um, you put these two people together, and uh, it didn't always go so well. So anytime Dick and I would have an argument, I would be convinced the marriage was over, and I would go and I would ceremoniously get my bag out of the closet, and I would announce to him that I was leaving, and he would say, okay. And uh, I'd get ready, I'd start walking towards the door, and I'd begin to open. I said, you understand now, I'm leaving. And he said, yes, I understand, see you later. And so I'd walk out the door, and then I'd peek back in, and I'd say, I, I mean it. I'm really leaving. And he said, I got it. See ya. So I'd go down. I'd get in the car. And uh, he wouldn't run down the stairs and say, oh, beloved, don't go. And so I'd be stuck. I'd have to go somewhere. I'd drive around the block. You know, I'd be gone an hour or two. I'd come back. I'd walk back in with my bag. He'd say, good to see you again. Put my bag back up until I did it the next time. And I did it over and over again. You know, that definition of insanity. <clears throat> Part of the reason that that didn't work is because Dick had been hanging out in Louisville with Pat and Doris and uh, Ruth and a bunch of people who were long-time Al-Anons in addition to their husbands. And uh, he had heard everything that Al-Anons tried to do to manipulate alcoholics, so nothing I tried worked. He'd had an advanced course, uh, so nothing, <laughs> nothing I did worked. So um, I finally, um, you know, Dick was also active in service. Uh, he was sponsoring people. There was a guy that across the street that uh, lived in this basement apartment, and he would emerge, and, uh, you know, they would have these discussions about how it was cheaper to buy cigarettes by the carton, and uh, the guy just couldn't exactly get it. He said, how often do you get paid? When, uh, why don't you buy your cigarettes by the carton? I can't afford it. How much do you pay for a carton of, uh, for a pack? How much do you pay for a carton? Finally, the guy got it. I mean, it was just like it would take so long, and my patience would wear out, uh, and his wouldn't, and I was impressed with that. Um, he also uh, was on the uh, 12-step list uh, for downtown Atlanta, and so he had some interesting, uh, we had some interesting folks spend the night on our couch uh, in our early marriage, and um, one of the guys that spent a little while trying to get sober uh, in our house knocked on the door about, I don't know, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning one night, and Dick went to the door, and I heard this guy say, I think I've just murdered someone, and I wasn't sure whether to call the police or what. He said, hold on a minute, and... Um, uh, he found out that uh, Emmanuel had been in the front uh, 
uh, front lawn, stabbing a tree with a butter knife. Um, but he also decided that maybe we weren't quite ready to have, you know, uh, Bob Smith's um, halfway house or whatever, <laughs> uh, detoxing people in our house for a little while, um, because it scared me too much. Um, but Dick was, uh, Dick was very kind and very loving and helped a lot of people, and I was still kind of on the outside looking in. I was going to meetings, I was trying to work the steps, um, and then we went to the International Convention in 1985 in Montreal. And uh, we got on the plane, and I think half of Louisville was on the plane, actually. Um, uh, somebody made an announcement, was there anybody, uh, any friends of Bill W. on the plane? And there was like 40 people, and, you know, uh, most of them were like Pat and uh, Joe, uh, and, and Doris and Joe, and they were all on the plane with us. And so, uh, and, and I should have, that should have made me feel like it, I fit in, and it didn't. I felt, I still felt like I was on the outside looking and we were walking around the city, and people were coming up and hugging him, and, and I, 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 it wasn't clicking for me. And we got back to the hotel that night, and um, I, I felt hopeless. And I you know, was in al kind of, you know. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I went in the bathroom, and I picked up a razor, and I walked out, and I, and I didn't get the reaction I thought I was going to get. Um, he started laughing at me. Now, before you think he's too cruel, it was one of those pink big daisy razors, and I'd been using it for about a month to shave my legs, so I wasn't really going to hurt myself. But I was that desperate, you know. And uh, the only one of us that's ever gotten physical with the other is I hit him. And, uh, and then I just brought He said, Barbara, if there's ever time for you to go to Al-Anon first. And it was Al-Anon's first international. Uh, we've had since one independent. I went to the next meeting. Um, and I heard her share about the... There was not just a spiritual side of this. It was a spiritual program. And um, that we didn't ever have to be this... And she talked about our three A's. AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and... And by the time I left that open meeting, I had finally taken the first step for me. Because I realized that... about it. Now, I don't know that Al-Anon saves everybody. I was, I was eventually going to take myself out because I was that hopeless. Um, so we got back to Atlanta... And I started going to Al-Anon, and uh, a lot of things turned around at that point. Um, but, you know, as I began working on the second and third step, you know, I had been a seminary student. You know, I had been very active in the church, but I didn't think God wanted me. The year that I graduated from the seminary, there was a resolution passed uh, by the church I had decided to serve that said e in ministry would be strongly discouraged. So I had interview after interview after interview, and nobody wanted me because I was a woman. And to my soul was God didn't want me. And uh, that's the way I began to feel. I felt like God had rejected me. So it was hard to accept that God might want me again. And I, I loved speaker meetings from the beginning. Even before I started going to Al-Anon for me, I loved particularly going to A. Here's a man who lived in a cardboard box and looked, and there must be a power greater than me. But I wasn't so sure of that thesis. And there were a lot of them. There were little small mirrors in um, Dick and I had some financial trouble. And when I look back on it, I think it was more because I needed to learn some lessons than it was about his money. But we got to a point in time where I wasn't sure we had money. And I did not know how to ask for help. Um, I did not know how to tell anybody. I was too proud. And so um, I finally asked, I got down on my knees. I said, God, I don't know if you're listening to me. Um, help me. And uh, two hours later, there was a knock on the door. And there was a friend of mine standing at the door, and she had Now, that was a huge, gigantic miracle in my life. I don't know if God delivers groceries for y'all, but God delivered groceries for me. So um, 
And by the time that day was over, I had taken the second and third. It was a dramatic thing for me to believe that I could ask for help and the answer. Um, you know, I was also stuck in a lot of uh, false pride. I was already involved in service by the time this happened, okay? You know, uh, our Al-Anon's book, when, uh, when I Got Busy, I Got Better, is certainly true because, you know, service helped me get well. I was out in the midst of uh, doing things on way before um, worked. So I'd go to service events or I'd even go to meetings. I had um, uh, this old beat-up, uh, it was somebody's old drunk car that someone had given it to me after my car died, which was a miracle. You know, I didn't know I was going to get around. I had a beat-up old car, but it was a car. Now, it had Judy Loves Donnie rusted into the front hood, and uh, the lights were broken out in the back and had tape over them. And, you know, this, the headliner was pinned up with pins. You know, it was, it was not a great car, but it was a car. Uh, but I was so ashamed of it, and I felt like nobody should have to see me driving in this car that I would park it a block or two away, and I'd walk the way, rest of the way to the meeting because I didn't want anybody to see me driving it. Um, but shortly after the groceries came, I decided I could drive in the parking lot and park. And when I was able to do that, it's just things started changing. When I was able to let go of whatever followed me. Um, I had a lot of character defects to look at. When Dick and I first got married, you know, I had that... Um, that slogan, I don't care whatever you want, answer to almost every question he would ask. And so Dick wasn't happy with that. I think in retrospect, he probably wishes he never talked to us. But he pulled over on the side of the road one day and said, I'm, we're not going anywhere till you tell me where you want to eat. And I said, well, we could go here. I know you like that. Or we could do this. And you can go over there. You, you like that one time. He said, no. We're... And I didn't have a clue. I picked the one I thought he liked the best. Um, so he went there. And, you know, he continued to ask me my opinion. And uh, we continued to do things that um, I would decide I wanted to do. And then suddenly I realized that just because I wanted something and I had an opinion, which I finally discovered that I did, didn't mean I was always going to get my way. So uh, then we had to learn about compromise. But um, I began to slowly discover that I could have my own life. I could have my own feelings. I could have my own opinions. I think for years I'd been like an empty shell, and I was just a mirror on the outside. Um, if you liked somebody, I liked them. If you hated them, I hated them. If you were happy, I was happy. If you were sad, I was sad. I didn't have my own life. I didn't have my own feelings. And suddenly, I began to discover that I did. Um, I had a tremendous amount of fear. Um, when Dick and I first got married, uh, we had uh, a mouse in our house. And I was terrified. And he had to get rid of it for us. And I didn't deal with it. And so um, then I was, I was working for him. I was his office manager for a while. And um, <clears throat> I um, was, um, uh, we had, we had uh, information given us that our, our office building was infested with mice. And so I just decided I'd work at home for a while until they were all gone. And, you know, I'd have my employees call in and, like, there'd be a mouse running up the phone cord. And they'd be terrified and I would be at home. Um, so not dealing with this fear, um, I, uh, did, I, we ended up moving out to the country. And we were out, uh, went out there, and one day I was in the bathroom, and I screamed bloody murder, and Dick came into the bathroom, and I said, I'd seen a rat. And he said, I'm sure it was a And I said, no, it was a rat. And uh, so the next morning, there was a note slid underneath the bedroom door. It said, don't come out. I have Mickey cornered. And so I, uh, a few minutes later, Dick came in the bedroom, and he had his bathrobe on. Uh, his hair it was kind of out like uh, Bozo the Clown. 
Uh, he had uh, his army boots on, a nine millimeter in one hand, a crowbar in the other, and <clears throat> he'd been up all night doing war with the rats. Um, and there were seven of them, actually. Um, and my sponsor gave me permission to move out for a couple of days, more because of Dick than the rats. But, <laughs> uh, but I'm not scared of mice anymore. You know, I don't particularly want seven rats again. Um, I skipped something uh, in my second and third step um, story. You know, when um, when I was uh, I had so much sadness and so much from everything that had been a part of my experiences looking for a job in the church. Um, uh, one of the interviews that I went to was down in Alabama, and I don't remember what town now. I don't remember what church is in that brown thing. Um, but I went down to this interview, and it was a room with about 50 people in a circle and a chair in the middle. And I walked in, and they put me in the chair in the middle, and the man that was sitting for me said, um, a woman who would have the audacity to apply for this job would look like. Uh, that's all. Now, I'd driven 10 hours to get there. I pulled together all my change to get gas, which you couldn't get for you. And uh, that's the only thing they said. And the first, now, I really didn't know what to say. Now, I've thought of a lot of things since then. But um, <clears throat> the, out, of the, out of this side of the room, I, I, I said, uh, I hope you're going to pay my expenses. There was a man who threw some money out on the floor. The most humiliated I'd ever been was picking that money up. Now, today I wouldn't do it. Today I have enough self-esteem in myself <clears throat> that I would have gone out and called relatives and gotten them to send something to WebNet. But um, I did then. Um, and part of my rebuilding of self-esteem was to figure out what I was supposed to be doing with my and to figure out, uh, to figure out that I did do things well. And um, I was working for uh, the do- denominational headquarters, and um, they were a little bit behind the the overall organization and making changes and I was there about two years when they told me that I would have to leave because they couldn't have women in administrative jobs anymore. So um, I went to work for Dick and so I was working for Dick because it was easy. And, and I liked it, I liked what he did, but we didn't really need me to do that anymore. I'd been typing stuff and we had computers now. Um, so I was doing Al-Anon service and I was um, running a CPC booth, and a friend of mine came up to me and said, you have a seminary degree, and he said, would you like to be chaplain at a women's halfway? I entered working in the field of chemical dependency. Now, if you think you need Al-Anon before, you really do, but um, I've been working in and around, um, I've been at one particular plant, we specialize in treating professionals, and uh, I love what I do, and uh, God showed up and showed me what I was supposed to do when I was just doing the next right thing. When I got busy, I got better in service. I found my career in um, I also uh, discovered that, um, you know, I had some resentments that I needed, to, had some amends to make. Uh, I, you know, Dick was 34 when we got married, and uh, <clears throat> I just was incensed that he could And uh, I mentioned it to my sponsor about one too many times, and she said, you cannot talk with me about this again unless you will try something. And I said, what? She said, no, you're going to say yes before I tell you what it is. Now, this is dangerous, y'all. If, if your sponsor ever tells you you have to do something, you have to agree to it before she tells you what it is, watch out. Um, anyway, I said yes, and she said, you're going to put the toilet seat up for him. for him." And so I said, okay. I wasn't happy about it, but I said, okay. So um, the first time I did it, I threw it back up. You know, you know the next couple times I'd, I would grumble. But pretty soon I was giggling. It was the funniest thing that I was going to put the toilet seat up for Dick. I just thought it was the funniest thing. And it got to the point it was almost hysterical because it was almost a month 
and he hadn't noticed. And so, <coughs> Anna, <laughs> one particular day he said, have you developed some kind of new unusual bathroom habit? And I said, no, honey, I'm just putting the seat up for you. And um, so uh, now, you know, it, we laughed about it, you know, and it's not important anymore. How important is it has gotten me out of more jams than I can tell you. It's one of my favorite slogans because if I can just stop a minute and go, wait a minute, am I fighting about a toilet seat or is this important enough to deal with? Now, I had some resentments that I needed to get rid of. I had, a, um, I had moved out uh, on a roommate while she was at work one day. Uh, we got mad at each other over a guy, and I moved out. I didn't leave her a note. I didn't leave her a Ford address. I didn't leave her any money. I just moved out. So she was on my list, and um, I called the last phone number for her, which wasn't good, and I called a number I'd had for her mother, and it wasn't good, and I called the college, and uh, the, the alumni office didn't have an address or a phone number, and I thought, I'm off the hook. So Dick and I are in vacation um, in a town I'd never been to, in a town she'd never been to, and I saw her walking down the mall coming the other way. And they say, you know, when you're ready to make an amends, the person just shows up. So here she is. <clears throat> I walked over to her. You know, I told her I was in Al-Anon, that I knew I'd owed her to men's, that I'd been trying to find her. I just, you know, talked, uh, told her that I, um, I was really sorry, looked in my wallet, had about the amount of money I thought I probably had lo- uh, owed her, gave it to her, gave her a card with my phone number on it, um, said, call me, you know, call me if you ever want to. She never said a word. She just stared at me like this. And so I wondered for a minute if it was her, but, <laughs> but it was, and she said not a word. A year later. She called me a year later, and she said, Barbara, you'll never know what a gift you gave me that day. She said, I had wiped so many people out of my life, and they just ceased to exist. And since you made them to me, I've reestablished a relationship with my mother, and I want to thank you for that. And I'm sending you some money back because you didn't want to be that much. And we're now in each other's Christmas cards. So you never know where an amend goes. Sometimes it has a triple-down effect, and other people as well. When it came to making amends to my grandmother, um, she had passed away. So I wrote her a long letter, um, everything that I remembered that was fun, uh, my sadness about recognizing that her problem was alcoholism, and um, my regrets about not being there for her when she needed And I went to her grave, and I read the letter there, and um, I tore it in little bitty pieces, and I mixed it with some mulch, which was her favorite plant. And um, I... uh, watered it with my own tears, you know, and I still try to go when I can to visit her grave when the camellias bloom because it helps me remember that if I'm able to let something go, there's something. Um, with my parents, um, I began making amends to them by just being in their life, you know, by calling them. Call them every day, want to, you know, want to tell you what's going on, how you doing. Sometimes it was 30, minutes, 30 seconds. Sometimes it was longer than that. When Dick and I were traveling, I'd call them to let, let them know we were going somewhere and where it was, and I'd call them when we got there. They didn't necessarily need to know, but they appreciated it. They appreciated the fact that I was respectful them enough to let them know what was going on in my life and where I was. And um, they started sharing their secrets with me and their family. It's also when I found out my mother had been married before my dad. You know, uh, she, you know, My dad was her second marriage, and I didn't know it until you know, after I was married. Uh, she married a man who was alcoholic. She met on a train, and they were married three months, and he divorced. She didn't think she'd ever tell me. So they started sharing things with me. Um, when my mother uh, celebrated her 50th anniversary in a sorority she was in, uh, it was the service sorority. I never quite understood it, but she never on. 
I kind of thought her program was kind of like the Yaya Sisterhood. But um, she asked me to give her a 50-year pin, and so I, I, got the, I got the gift of being able to. Those women were very special to her, and they've all stayed in touch with me. Um, and Dick and I were able to give my parents the 50th anniversary. And during that time, we also started trying to convince them. Uh, they were pretty much housebound. They were having trouble getting up and down stairs, and there were 15 stairs to get in and out of their house. So they were stuck in the house. So we finally, finally convinced them. We found a wonderful uh, senior living, assisted living uh, place to move them into. We got them all new furniture. We took all their favorite pictures, things that they'd never really taken time to do that with themselves, covered the walls with their We moved them close to us. Um, and uh, it was hard, but we moved them in there. And so we were perfectly prepared for them to be there a year. Um, six months later, um, in January, uh, I got a call that my fa- father had been And uh, <clears throat> Dick and I rushed to the hospital. And just the fact that he was home there then, he'd been on a plane the day before out at Hartsville Airport. And the plane had mechanical problems. He was sitting out on the tar- tarmac for three hours. And uh, they finally, and we're going to be in it a couple hours. We're going to have to, to equipment. And he got off the plane and said, I don't think. Um, so we, uh, we began planning a funeral. My dad had Alzheimer's. Um, he still knew me. You know, he was miserable. He was ready to go. He didn't want to be living that way. And I began to see that. Um, we had a beautiful service. Um, I uh, helped my mom get ready. Uh, family and friends were there. We celebrated my dad's life. And uh, program friends sang. And Dick and I went off to the Hilton Head Roundup to, uh, you know, just kind of regroup. And on Monday, um, right, we decided to stay a couple extra days. On Monday, after the Roundup, we got a call that my mom had been. Uh, we jumped in the car and started rushing back. And Dick was driving a little bit too fast, Jay. And, <laughs> and uh, he got pulled over by the police. And um, I think that he got stopped so um, he'd have somebody to be mang- angry at other than God because he, he was mad at the policeman almost the way back. Um, and we stopped at a Wendy's, and on the Muzak and the Wendy's, they were playing How Great Thou Art. Now, I've never heard Christian music since. I had to ask a couple people to be sure. Um, but that was a miracle, because we had just sang that song, um, and there the song was in the Wendy's, like this brush of angel wings. Um, we got back, and my, they revived my mom. Um, so we got to be there. We, I got to see her. And um, I was whole, Dick and our hands were on top of her head, and we were praying the Lord's Prayer right in the middle of Thy will be done. Um, I've always heard about that gift of being with So I lost my, t- my parents 10 days apart. My mother died on Groundhog's Day times, and I couldn't even envision doing the same funeral again. This was something I couldn't manage to do. And we also hadn't gotten any insurance money yet. We didn't really have the money for another funeral. So we had a program funeral. A friend of ours, an AA um, minister, and he said, use my church. And a bunch of our friends got together, and we had a covered dish, and friends got together to play the piano. Uh, we even had our funeral director was in the- So everybody that was part of this, and it was really hard. My mom had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but she'd watched my dad go downhill. I began to feel at peace about it. I was out on the back porch one night, and I just was praying that I knew, somehow they knew they were together, and uh, it was like my parents were riding this. Um, we also had this blue heron that started showing up at our property on weekdays. Uh, week, uh, W-E-A-K, uh, days that we were feeling very weak. The first time we saw the blue heron was the day that our dog, Booger Bear, died. Digger, um, he was 18, and uh, he was our only child. 
and I loved him, and he taught me a lot about unconditional love. You know, you could walk out the door, and he greet you just like it, you know. He uh, taught me a lot about love, and, you know, when you turn the letters dog around, you get God, and um, in a lot of ways, uh, Booger Bear taught me a lot about the God of my understanding. Um, um, and he taught us how to grieve. So when my parents passed, um, and the blue heron was there during that time, we began to recover. We went to the International Convention, and um, uh, we were beginning to feel a bit better. And Dick um, had a, a routine, you know, uh, midlife uh, colonoscopy, endoscopy, never expecting to find anything. He couldn't tell me. Sometimes I get sad that he couldn't tell me. He didn't want me to have to go through another soon. And I knew something was wrong, and he was on my insurance, and I had to take this letter to our HR director. We were trying to get the insurance company said evidence of carcinoma, and I, you know, I know enough about medical stuff to know that's cancer. I know a doctor wouldn't write this if he didn't have it, so I think I knew, but trying to hang on. The miracles that came into place, you know, uh, were extraordinary. The company I work for is owned by a Fortune 500 company, and so their HR department, the big HR department, called the insurance company and put pressure on them to approve. So the folks in my my office helped put pressure on that got this big corporations moving to Google to have this procedure. And the way that we ended up in Rochester, New York, uh, as Dick mentioned last night, was God ordained. We weren't quite sure why we were going to Yankee land. And um, I was a little terrified that I was going to be in Yankee land and Dick was going to die and I was going to be there by myself. And so I started making calls and sending emails and uh, contacting Al-Anon uh, information office up there. I contacted the, found and contacted the delegate up there. God had just seen fit that we were supposed to be speaking in Syracuse uh, about six months after Dick's surgery, and Syracuse is not far from Rochester, so we called those people. And so all these people just started coming into our lives. We had about 80 people that visited, and uh, in fact, the people at the hospital said, people, you know, they, they, could quite, they couldn't quite figure it out. And as Dick said last night, we got there, we walked into the chapel, and there was in big gold letters on the wall, which he been, I mean the uh, 23rd Psalm, which he'd been saying over. And here was Strong Memorial uh, had found, found the alcoholic foundation, and we were in his hospital, you know. And Dick had a determination uh, that I don't know everybody does have. Uh, when the physical therapist got him out of the bed the first time, you know, they just said, if you could walk to the end of the bed and back, that would be good for today. Well, he lapped the nurse's station four times. And um, uh, she said, I've never seen somebody with this much determination. He said, well, if I can make it through alcoholism in Vietnam, sir. And that was, that was his willpower. That was his just close together. And every day there were just uh, my cell phone and his cell phone were filled up every day. Hundreds of emails, you know, letters, flowers. Uh, when you get a call from Clancy, I mean, Clancy called me. <laughs> and there was just people from all over the country that were left us. Um, and um, I, I truly felt blessed during that process. And we were leaving Rochester. He couldn't leave right away. We stayed in a hotel room that was way too small for two weeks, trying to get him strong enough. And um, we started driving back towards Louisville. And uh, we got there, and about an hour before we got to Louisville, we got a call that uh, Dick, um, And we got there in time for, for Dick. So Dick barely still on a tube and barely out of surgery. There were there was Pat, you know, and uh, losing three parents and cancer. 
But there were so many other, there were so many, you know, Dick couldn't work for a long time, and we didn't know how we were going to survive financially. He had almost died in 2001 from a ruptured appendix, and uh, at the same time he had a kidney stone, and they didn't find the ruptured appendix uh, six days, and he had severe peritonitis, and and he made it through there. I I told Dick that uh, I think he's a cat. You know, I'm not sure how many lives he's burned through, but but we'd already kind of gone through our savings with that. And we came to this event, we didn't have anything to back up. And money started coming in the mail. You know, it was almost like the end of it. So, you know, letters would come in the mail and there'd be money. There were a few checks. Some of them we knew who they were from, but we didn't know where a lot of that money came from. It, if you're in the heart of this program, you never have to be fear care of us. And it was evidence. I'm really glad, and I'm surprised at myself because I'm a great Googler, but I did not look at the statistics of esophageal cancer when we, when we real, realized just how few people survive it, again, we truly knew well. Uh, only 3% of the people survive six months more than alcoholism for me. And um, if you haven't experienced your mirror, you know, I don't think I was looking at all this. I remember Dick and I were down at the beach in the last year and a half, and I was walking around uh, at sunset, and the noise in my head, you know, if you look each day, that book, it's not, uh, I ha- we have a new reading, a little something that's out of our Al-Anon book, having had a it's called God with Skin. At a meeting, I heard a loving story that has stuck with me. He ran to his parents' bed and crept closely between giving me that hug when I needed it the most and enveloping with me with a... <laughs>